You're listening to the Beyond the Zero podcast, and that means you have exceptional taste in literature. So let me tell you about the greatest book you've never read, The Recalcitrant Stuff of Life by this guy, Sean McCallum. Ambitious, gritty, and raucously entertaining, The Recalcitrant Stuff of Life takes readers on a journey from Toronto and New York to Lima, Peru, then across the Andes, down the Amazon River, and into the darkness. This book is a lot of things. But the best description I've heard is that it's a profoundly philosophical examination of the meaning of life masquerading as a gonzo buddy travel adventure. The recalcitrant stuff of life is filled with tragedy, hilarity, regret, and a little ayahuasca. I have a pretty good feeling it'll be right in your wheelhouse. You can pick up a copy from Amazon or by requesting it at your local independent bookstore. But because Beyond the Zero is such a badass podcast, Ben has six copies available for his loyal listeners. Shoot him a message and let him know which literary critic originally coined the phrase the recalcitrant stuff of life, and we'll get a bristling copy of this unforgettable book into your hands. Thanks for reading. Back to you, Ben. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 48 of Beyond Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is Eduardo Halfon. Ed is a writer. His new novel, Cancion, is out now. He joins me from tropical Guatemala. Welcome to the show, Ed. Thank you, Ben. It's great to be here. And thank you so much for joining me with our shared nightmares of vertigo and internet dropouts. Yeah, yeah. You never know what's going to hit, huh? <laughs> you never know. Um, Guatemala, obviously, is in Central America. It borders Mexico. Apart from that, I know nothing about the place. Do you want to tell us a bit about Guatemala and how your holiday is going over there? Yeah, yeah. You know what's funny when when you say tropical Guatemala, um, I think when people think about a, a country like Guatemala or Central America, for that matter, they they imagine tropical and and jungles and and hot weather and and Guatemala City is anything but that. Um, it's very uh, mild. The weather right now, for example, is 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 very mild. It's almost cool. Uh, it's very high, high, so the altitude here is is a factor. It's I think uh, eighteen hundred meters above sea level. Wow. Uh, very mountainous, very green. Um, it's a, it's 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 a it's it's a very comfortable place to live in because there's no seasons. So. There's no summer, there's no winter, there's no, you don't need heating, you don't need air conditioning. It's basically just the dry season and the wet season. So you have six months of, of, of rain daily, which is where we're at now, and six months of dry, so, so no rain. Uh, but it's, it's a very comfortable city, weather-wise. That said, Ben, it's a very dangerous city to live in. Um, it's very chaotic. Uh, so, so gang violence is, is much worse. Political violence is much worse. Uh, kidnappings, holdups, murders. Uh, it is just uh, much worse than it's ever been. Poverty is much worse than it's ever been. Uh, malnutrition, 
uh, lack of education, lack of health services. So it is a very, very chaotic city and country in, in, in that regard, socially, politically. Um, it, it's, it's not an easy place to live. Uh, and in my uh, regard, it's a, not an easy place to visit uh, because you feel all of that much more. The people who live here, my family, my wife's family, they get used to it. There's this almost anesthesia um, quality of, of being in, in a place like this, that you don't feel it anymore. You don't fear it anymore. Uh, uh, and, and when you just come visit once a year, you really feel it. Uh, it's, 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 you, you see it, you, you see the, the psychotic state that most people have to live in, in order to tolerate. And I, and I can give you some very surreal examples of that if, 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 if you wish. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a very complicated country, very complicated country. Uh, I, I keep telling my son that these are probably Guatemalans are some of the most charming people uh, you'll ever meet. Very nice. Uh, always say hello. They always, you know, uh, smile, except for when they're in their cars, and then they become <laughs> monsters. And I'm I'm not exaggerating. It, it, there's it, it's such a stressful life. You know, the fear of 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 being kidnapped. The fear of ha of of, of uh, having. A, a gun pulled out at, at a stoplight. Uh, just all of this, this warlike mentality makes people very angry all the time, um, and you can and you can and you can see this. Uh, but so so Guatemala is a very very contradictory country uh, in, in 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 that sense. Does it have the typical kind of corrupt um, government oh, that's absolutely. completely like absolutely. dysfunctional? Okay. Absolutely dysfunctional. Absolutely, yeah. um, co the corruption is is uh, complete and very very profound. Uh, so it's not a few people. In, 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 in is is what I mean. It's 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 a it's a system. It's a corrupt system, uh, which has been getting worse in 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 the past fifty years, sixty years. Um, and, and, and I, would, I would say that now is the absolute worst it's ever been. It's, it's um, uh, a military government, a military-backed president, a military-controlled government. Uh, so th this year, for example, to give you one example, there's been a fleeing, a mass fleeing of judges uh, just because... They can't, they, can't, they can't do their job anymore. They are under such pressure of e either threatened um, or killed that most of them have fled. Most of the, of the, of the, of the uncorrupt judges are in the U.S. Uh, under, under, under U.S. protection. Um, so it is, it, is a, it is a huge problem. It is a problem um, to which I am extremely pessimistic. Uh, I am not, I, I, I don't see how you can fix a system that is so profoundly corrupt. Wow. And it sounds like, you know, like very much the same case in places like Venezuela and other places all over Central and South America. What do you think 
makes Central and South America so different in terms of corruption and crime and things like that? That's a good question. It's a complicated question, just because it's, it's, this has been going on for decades. Um, so th- it's, it's the lack of education is, is, a, is, a, is a quick answer, you know, but a lack of education throughout generations. So you have a, a generations of Guatemalans that have not had access to education. Uh, Ill, illiterate, um, just absolute, the, the system that maintains a po- the population under control. Yeah. Uh, there was a chance back in the 1950s. Guatemala had a chance to get out of this. There was one president who I mentioned in, in Cancion, my new book, um, Jacobo Arbenz, who was elected. He was only the second president, Ben, to be democratically elected in Guatemala. Before him, it was all military generals placed into power or gotten into power through coups. Uh, but Jacobo Arbenz was elected. And he was elected under a very interesting platform and it was land reform his idea was that there it is it is unacceptable for for a country like guatemala uh so rich you know in 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 soil in agriculture in it is unacceptable for the majority of the population this is 70 80 percent of the indigenous population to have no access to land zero uh, not even for their own personal use. When companies, uh, mostly United States companies, like the United Fruit Company, had 60, 70% of the land uh, that was given to them. So he came into power with the idea of land reform. And within a year, he was uh, removed by a CIA-backed coup. Uh, and, and that moment for me is crucial for two reasons. One, it was the last hope. It was the last shot at addressing poverty, addressing the lack of education, addressing the lack, the lack of, of, of land ownership. Um, and also it was the beginning of the war, of the armed internal conflict, of the civil war, which would last for the next 36 years uh, and, and, and would absolutely decimate uh, the country. And which is still, it's, it, 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 it's, it's still that way. It's still under that uh, failure, living under that failure, so to speak. I find the CIA involvement in so many of these cases in South America and Central America yes. fascinating. Yes, and that's, I think, going back to your question, that is a, a constant. When I write a book like Cancion, which deals with the Civil War, with, 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 the, with the Guatemalan Civil War, an Argentinian understands it perfectly. Uh, a, a Chilean understands it perfectly. A Nicaraguan understands it perfectly. There's this common history that we share as Latin Americans of dictators, of oppression, of, of, of oligarchs just taking over the country. Uh, so there's this... this uh, these common threads 
throughout all of, all of these Latin American countries. Some have gotten past their history, some have resolved it, and others like Guatemala have not. Um, but, but yes, so CIA was in Chile, CIA was in Argentina, CIA was in Nicaragua, CIA was in Cuba, CIA was in Guatemala. It was, it was this, these, these Cold War decades uh, where they, they, they feared another Cuba, basically. Uh, so they, they, there was just this interventionist policy of putting into power somebody we like, um, much like in Asia as well. Wow, unbelievable. Okay. Yeah. Obviously, you were born over in Guatemala, and we find quite a lot about that in your book as well. You've obviously spent time in America as well. But do you want to tell us more about your upbringing in Guatemala? Sure, sure. Yeah, I was born here by accident, I, I, I like to say. Um, you know, my four grandparents um, are European, and they, they arrived here uh, by different routes and for different reasons. Uh, so my, my Polish grandfather and, and, and Syrian grandmother on my mother's side, and Lebanese grandfather and Egyptian grandmother on my on my father's side, all Jewish, but but uh, from different European countries. Uh, and and my parents were born here, and then I was born here. We were born here with my siblings. I was born in, in 1971, so right in the middle of this civil war. I was I was talking about, um, but it was very interesting, Ben, because I grew up in probably the the worst decade of that war, uh, very violent, completely unaware, completely unaware that there was a war going on. Two reasons for this. One is that that war was mainly in the mountains. So it was mainly outside of Guatemala City, took place elsewhere. But in the late 70s, that war entered the city. So 1979, 1980, especially 1981, I remember gunshots suddenly. I remember bombs. I remember bodyguards all over the place. Um, so this started when I was about nine. Uh, but the other reason to go back to the, to the why I, I, I didn't know about this war is that we city kids from a certain social class were, lived in a bubble. They kept us in, in, in a little bubble away from what was really going on in the country. Uh, and that's still the case. That's still the case in most, uh, for example, Guatemalan private schools that recent history is not even taught. So there's still this, this negation of what was going on in the country. Um, so in 1981, when the war enters Guatemala City uh, and it's suddenly dangerous to be here, we leave um, with my parents, you know, my, my, my family. We left for the US. I was uh, 10, it was the day after my 10th birthday. And we moved to Florida, uh, to South Florida, and I grew up in the U.S. I, I you know, I, I think my, my parents had planned for us to go for, for, for some time, just while the situation um, became better, or, or at least calmed down a bit. But uh, that turned out for me to be 12 years. So I stayed throughout my my schooling and then the university. Um, and didn't come back to Guatemala until after the university. So I was 22, 23. 
and had lost my Spanish. I, I could understand it because my parents would always speak to us in Spanish, but um, I could barely speak it. I spoke it with a very thick American accent. Uh, so I came back, you know, I was 23 and I came back to a country I didn't know anymore, to a culture I didn't understand, to a, to a language I didn't speak. And it was a very, very uh, stressful time. Um, but I had to come back because I, I, I never became American. I was always in the US with a student visa. And when I finished studying, I was forced to, to leave uh, and, I, and, I, and I had to come back. So interesting. I wanna ask you a little bit more about your grandparents as well. Cause obviously we know Jewish migration to South America has been happening for hundreds of years. Um, right. Mainly in South America, Brazil, Argentina, Venezuela, um, places like that. Your family came to Central America. Um, right. Do you want to tell us a bit more how they chose to end up in Guatemala? It was, I don't think they ever chose. I, I, I think that's probably the, 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 the key word. Um, it was a series of accidents in, in, in all of their cases. I'll, 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 and the stories are as fascinating as they could be mythological as well. So <laughs> we don't know how much of this is true. It's just like, it's, it's family folklore now. Um, my Polish grandfather, uh, you know, he was in, in, in concentration camps. He was captured in, in, in September of 39. So one of the first captured in Poland by the Germans and spent six years in camps, uh, survived um, miraculously. Uh, and, but his entire family did not. His parents were killed, his siblings were killed, his, you know, everybody was killed. So after the war, he just started looking for a relative anybody. And he found a distant uncle who had left before the war and was in Guatemala. And so he came here. And I can't help but think, Ben, what would go through somebody's mind? Um, a, a, you know, it was a Polish young man to come to Guatemala of all places. It must have been like going to the to, to, to Jupiter uh, without the language, without uh, without knowing even where it is on the map. Probably, he just arrived. He he went to New York and then came to Guatemala. Uh, my other grandfather, my my Lebanese grandfather, his story is is as fascinating but diametrically opposed. They left Beirut when he was very young. He was in his teens, uh, and it was eight siblings that left. Uh, they first went to Paris and they left because of the Great Famine. There was a Great Famine going on in Beirut. So right after the First World War, uh, they all arrived in Paris. And then something very curious happened. They split up. So my grandfather stayed in Paris and all of the siblings split up in Latin America. So one went to Bogota, to Cali in, in Colombia. Another went to Argentina, another went to Mexico, another went to Cuba, another went to Lima, Peru, another went to New York. And they each opened a shop. My grandfather in Paris would buy the textiles, he'd send it to each brother, and they would sell it. Um, so their strategy, instead of clinging to, a family, to family members, as was my Polish grandfather's story, uh, was the opposite. It was, it was, let's split up. And if any of us 
runs into trouble, the rest can help him out. And that's exactly what happened. One of his brothers, one of my grandfather's brothers had come to Guatemala and opened a store and went bankrupt. My grandfather came from Paris, helped him out, met my grandmother and stayed. Uh, but, but to me, these two stories uh, are so indicative of my family. You know, the Polish, the Ashkenazi Jews have this almost ghetto-like mentality. Um, and, I, and I use the word carefully. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's this, let's band together. My uncles are still that way. They were taught that way by my grandfather of, of sticking together. And the, my Arabic side is much more nomadic, much more Bedouin, if, if you will, of, of going splitting up and going to different places and, and, and not having all the eggs in one basket, to use another uh, image. Um, but, but it's very, very different. And my grandmothers are very similar. My grandmother, from my mother's side, uh, had a gambling father who was running away from debts from Aleppo. And they went all over the place. So she has siblings born almost gypsy-like, you know, on the, on the, on the road. She has a uh, she had because they're all they all passed away. But she had a sister born in Mexico, a sister born in in the Dominican Republic, a sister born, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then eventually they wound up in Guatemala, just running away from debts. My other grandmother uh, from Alexandria, from Egypt, uh, I think her story is the, is the is the most fantastical out of all of them. Um, I was told that they got on a boat uh, and they wanted to go to Panama. And my great grandfather, so her father, uh, didn't know that the boat was going to stop first in Guatemala. And they got off the boat uh, thinking it was Panama and stayed. Uh, I have no idea if how, how true that is, but let's just say it's, uh, let's just say it is. It's, 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 a, it's a great story. <laughs> when I was talking to Andras Neumann, uh, last year, whenever it was, um, I think he was mentioning the fact that I guess Jews have this kind of uh, movement in them and they always seem to be moving and finding new places and also finding each other. Um, I wanted to ask you, like in Guatemala, like there's not a whole lot of Jews, is there? No, there's not. No, 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 no. I would say around 600 maybe. Wow. Okay. That's yeah. so interesting. Okay. Yeah, but in a country, this isn't a country of almost 15 million. Mm. However, if you ask a Guatemalan, um, they think there's much more Jews. So, so the Jewish community here is very present uh, for some reason, economically, uh, politically, just in terms of influence. Uh, but there's very, very few Jews. And in, in a Jewish community that small, Ben, it tends to dwindle just because of a very practical reason, you don't have somebody to marry. Uh, so either you marry a cousin or you have to go to Mexico, which has a very large Jewish community or to Venezuela or to Colombia or, and that's what happens. Um, mm -hmm. most, most young men and women leave uh, yeah. because they have to. Yeah, okay. I want to ask you a bit more about your more recent history because now you're living over in Germany. Previous to that, though, what have you been doing for the last five or six years? Well, uh, 
basically uh, doing like my, my grandfather, just jumping around everywhere, very, very nomadic. Um, I've been very nomadic my entire life. You know, I was, I was, I always say that we left Guatemala when I was 10, but I was never really here. You know, my, the, the, those first 10 years, growing up in a Jewish family within a very Catholic country, a, a totally Catholic country, was very bizarre. Uh, I remember, for example, then all of my, my friends were, were, were non-Jews. All of my friends were Catholic. Um, so as a Jewish kid, you wonder why your life is not like theirs. Why is there no Christmas? Why is there no uh, Holy Week? Why am I not doing the First Communion? Uh, just the school holidays. Every school holiday is, is Catholic-based. The calendar, the, the ceremonies, the rituals. So growing up that way is very strange because you're allowed to watch, but you're not allowed to play. Uh, so you're almost educated in this outsider mentality. You know, you're taught to be an outsider from very, very young. And then I've been jumping around ever since. The past five years have been especially nomadic. So we were... We were um, let me, let me rewind a little bit. Uh, we left Guatemala in 2007. So 2007 for me was very important um, because I, 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 I left Guatemala. We left for Spain with, with my wife. Um, and I left because uh, I wanted to be a writer, basically. Um, so... If, if you want, I can, I can start there and then, and then move yeah. forward to, to, the, to the last five years. As you know, uh, I don't think we've mentioned this, I, didn't, I, didn't, I don't come from writing. I didn't study literature. Um, I, I never read books growing up. I was, not, I was not into books. I didn't understand literature. I was always the math kid or the sports kid in, in school. Um, and I studied engineering. You know, um, my, my way into literature was very accidental. I, 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 as I mentioned, I came back to Guatemala when I was 23 and was very frustrated, very out of place. So the word in Spanish is, is, is uh, desubicado. We don't have that word in English. It's, it's, desubicado is, means out of place, but out of place, not just physically, but emotionally, uh, spiritually, just completely out of place. And uh, I began trying to find my way into the country, find my way back to language, you know, back to Spanish. But all the time, more and more frustrated. Um, this went on for about four or five years until I decided to look for help. Um, but my very rational way of looking for help was to go back to the university and try to take a couple of philosophy courses. I thought that philosophy might have the answers to why I was so existentially lost. Um, I guess I could have gone to a rabbi, I could have gone to a, to, a, to a psychologist, but I went to the university. And when I got there and wanted to enroll, the person said, you can, but you also have to enroll in literature because in Guatemala, in much of Latin America, it's a joint degree. It's called Letras y Filosofía, Literature and Philosophy. And I was forced then 
to take a couple of literature courses. And I immediately fell in love. Uh, I don't know what it was. I was, I was 28. It wasn't a particular writer or a particular book. It was just the concept of fiction and the, the, the idea of storytelling um, that, that just uh, enamored me. And I became a reader. I was 28 when I became a reader. Uh, and I just could not read enough. I was, I was, I was a junkie for books. I just, I just read all day. I would read a book a day. Uh, I was I, I was working as an engineering as an engineer in the mornings, so I, I only part time. I, I I quit in the afternoons so that I could read, uh, and this went on for about two years. No idea about writing. I d- I didn't know one could be a writer. Uh, I just wanted to be a reader, and I filled myself up with so many books, Ben, that the consequence of that, the overflow of that, was writing. And, and I began to timidly <laughs> uh, try to write in Spanish. I could yet speak it uh, properly. I had not gotten it back, but I began to write or to try to write uh, very, very poorly, very, very bad stories, but to write. Uh, and then I quit my job. And I said, okay, let's, 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 uh, let's, do, let's do some writing. And uh, this was 1998. Uh, and I decided to go to Paris. This is a very long answer to your question, by the way. <laughs> but but, but I'll, I'll get there. I'll get there eventually. Uh, and, and, and I went to Paris because I wanted to be a writer, which is very romantic and ridiculous at the same time. Uh, because I couldn't write. I couldn't write, but I, but I went anyways. And I got to Paris, and a few days later, I became terribly ill. I got some kind of flu, and I wound up in a hotel room, absolutely uh, by myself, miserable, uh, just reading and, and, and trying to write all day, and, and nothing happened. And I came back to Guatemala with a sense of failure, you know? Uh, uh, this was this was a few months later, but the day I came back to Guatemala, and this is this is uh, the key. That night, I got a call, and it was one of my philosophy professors offering me a job uh, as his assistant in the university, and so uh, I became his assistant. And in hindsight, now looking back, Paris was this sort of pivotal point for me you know there was before Paris where I was an engineer and there was after Paris where I became a a, a reader an academic a would-be writer something changed in Paris and uh, I, 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 I began I began I gave this professor this philosophy professor one of the stories I had written in in Paris a very bad story. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll spare you the details. Uh, and I ran into w- w- perhaps the, the, the most honest Guatemalan I could, uh, and he tore the story apart. He, he, he said, this is absolute, uh, absolutely terrible. Um, he said to me something which I will never forget. 
He said, you want to write a story when you can't write one line. I will never forget that. He said, you can't write one line and you want to write a story, you know, a 20 page story. And I said, yes, Ernesto, I, I want to learn how to write. And so he began to teach me how to write one line. And it was one line every day. And we would go to over it every day and one line and another line. And it was just, it was an exercise in language and paying attention to language before wanting to tell a story. Just learn the language, learn the craft. Um, and two or three years later, I published my first book. Uh, it, was, it was very, very fast, very accidental. Uh, I was not expecting it. Nobody was expecting it. Uh, that was not the path that I should have been on, but that's what happened. Uh, and I was teaching at the university. I was, I was trying to write. And in 2007, to finally get to 2007, I, I knew that something had to give. I, I, I couldn't do both. I couldn't be an academic and a writer. And so I quit my job teaching uh, and left the university, left the country uh, and became a writer. And I have been gone from Guatemala ever since. And so then obviously you go to America, right? Mm -hmm. And then... Um, your time no, 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 oh. no. Actually, yeah. we go first to Spain. Uh, yeah. We spent, we spent a few years in Spain uh, and then to America. Yes. Then we go back. I go back to the U.S., but I go back to a very different U.S. than Florida. We went to Nebraska mm -hmm. uh, just because my wife, who's, who's a biologist, um, got a Fulbright scholarship to, to do her Ph.D. And we were in Nebraska for eight years. And... Uh, that was a very interesting experience because uh, we arrived in Nebraska with Obama and left with Trump. And we <laughs> saw this change uh, in Nebraska, but I was just writing, Ben. I was, I was, I was not teaching. I was, I was in this little part of the world where nobody bothers you. There's no visitors. There's no tourism. There's no friends coming over. Nobody knew I was a writer in Nebraska and I could just write. And it was, it was wonderful. Um, our son was born there in 2016. Uh, we left in 2018 when he was two and went to Iowa for a year uh, and then to Paris for a year, which is where we, um, we, were, we got stuck there with, with, with the pandemic. With the pandemic. Uh, so had to move to Southern France where we lived for a year. And uh, then I got offered a fellowship to go, to go to Berlin uh, and we accepted. And we've, we've been in, in Berlin for a year now, uh, which is something I never thought I'd do, you know, for, to, to go live in Berlin. But uh, uh, it's been very interesting. I do have to ask you about the south of France where you lived uh, during right. the pandemic, because that sounds pretty idyllic. It was, it was. Uh, it was uh, it was very serendipitous. Uh, we were in Paris when a fellowship I had in Paris from Columbia University ended. Uh, Guatemalan Airport was closed. It was the peak of COVID. Uh, so COVID started February, March. This was May, and we didn't want to leave France, uh, but we had to leave Paris. Paris was unbearable. Paris was expensive. 
Paris was paranoid. Uh, still nobody knew what was going on. Um, and my brother, my younger brother, uh, lives in Southern France. And he offered, he said, why don't you come here for the summer and then decide? And so we did. We, we, we moved to a, a very small town in Southern France uh, called Fort Calquier, um, rented a small house, enrolled our son in school. Schools never cl closed in France during the pandemic and stayed for another year. And it was fantastic. We were in the mountains. We were away from civilization, away from the virus. Uh, our son was, was you know, going to school in the morning and we were taking, making hikes in the afternoons in the mountains. It was absolutely wonderful. Uh, and with family, because my brother and his family were there. Uh, and while we were there, we had this, this invitation to go to Berlin. Um, but Southern France was, was the right place at the right time, which not always happens. But in that case, it did. And your son, Leo, who's five, now speaks four languages. That's right. By, by, by accident, you know, he was born in English, uh, has Spanish as his mother tongue at home still. That's his strong language. Uh, but he was two years in the French school system. So he's a, a, a perfect uh, Francophone. Uh, and now he speaks German after a year in Berlin. He has... He has Kids have a, a, an ease with language because they don't question it. You know, there's, there's, they don't question the grammar of it. They just absorb it and repeat it, almost sponge-like. Uh, and that's what he's been doing. Uh, so he speaks four languages. Uh, in, in Berlin, we don't speak German. So he's our interpreter at restaurants, in the supermarket, on the bus. Uh, he has, as he says, his own private language from mom and dad. Uh, and, and he probably will for the rest of his life because I don't see myself learning German anytime soon, but, but <laughs> it, he, he, he speaks four languages, yeah. And I, th I find it ironic that you're back in Berlin after you know, one of your grandfathers was obviously stuck in camps in Germany as well. Right, and he was stuck in a camp. My grandfather was, was, was in many camps, but he was mostly in one, uh, which was Sachsenhausen, which is just outside of Berlin. So he was a prisoner right where we're living now. And it, and it is unavoidable, Ben, for his story and that story to creep into my writing. Um, it's just, it's just, it's been creeping in for the past year just because I'm there, you know, it's, 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 I'm living in the place where that story took place. Um, it's, it's very powerful to be a Jew in Berlin still because Berlin as a city is, almost like a museum, you know? Everywhere you walk, everywhere you turn, everywhere you look, there's reminders of that. There's reminders of what happened in Berlin uh, 70 years ago. Uh, it's, 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 just, it's just there, 80 years ago, no? Um, yeah. Uh, so so uh, that has been creeping into what I'm working on now, yeah. I obviously came across your work quite a number of years ago with The Polish Boxer, which was your first book that was published. And right. finding that in Australia, I think through Pushkin, like we were talking before we started recording, was just a real find for me because I found that the idea of the Jewish Central American writer who was writing about, you know, pretty Jewish things and family histories and stuff like that was amazing. 
Um, right. Since then, I think, you know, I've read most of your books electronically, um, including this one. Um, I wanted to ask you just quickly about, I guess, publishing with Bellevue now and, um, and I guess trying to get your books out into the world a bit more. In order to talk to you about the Polish boxer, Ben, um, you know, I mentioned this, 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 my beginnings as a writer and, and, and I published a, a first book in 2003 um, and then another book in 2004, very literary, a writer uh, finding his, his, his beginnings. You now it's a writer's beginnings and, and, and uh, you're still trying to figure things out, um, but you're publishing, you know, along the way. Uh, but after 2004, I started working on a few stories. Um, I didn't know what they were. Uh, I just knew a voice arrived, uh, a narrator who just happened to have my name. Uh, so it, it's this other Eduardo Halfon uh, who looks a lot like me, who has my bio, but who smokes. I don't smoke. Uh, he has a very specific voice a very specific temperament, which is not mine. Uh, and I just started working on these stories. Um, the first two were Twaining and White Smoke, I remember. I was working on them almost at the same time. Uh, and a few years before that, uh, I had spoken to my grandfather, my Polish grandfather, for the first time about his experience in the war. Uh, so he arrived in Guatemala in 1946 and decided not to speak about what happened. Uh, so when we were kids in the 70s, we would ask him about his tattoo, about the number on his arm, and he would say, it's my phone number. Uh, you know, I, I, I had my phone number tattooed in case I forgot it. It was, it was, it was it's a little joke, but it was his way of saying, uh, I don't, want to, I don't want to speak about that. I'm not, I'm not going to speak about that. And, and so we, we, we didn't ask, you know, but it, in the late 90s, uh, I remember I went up to my mother and I asked her what camps he had been in, her father, and she didn't know. And I thought that was incredible, no, that, that the family didn't know his story. So I went up to him and I said, can, can we speak? I said, Oitze, can we speak? He said, of course, sit down. And I said, can I record you? He said, of course. And so I, I recorded him speaking for the first time in 60 years about what had happened. Uh, he took out a bottle of whiskey and, and, and finished mostly him, but I helped the bottle of whiskey. He was very calm. And it was about four or five hours of, of conversation, very, very unorganized chronologically. And I remember, Ben, that in those four or five hours, he told me a story of a boxer. And to him, it was a, an anecdote. It was a two-minute anecdote. And I knew, as soon as I heard that story, I knew that that was his story. Yeah. There was other things that happened to him, very dramatic, t terrible, uh, you know, Holocaust stories. But this one, 
resonated. And I, and I grabbed it and stuck it in my pocket and uh, carried it around for the next few years. So when I began working on these other stories of this narrator called Eduardo Halfon, my grandfather's story would sort of peek out, you know, like a, like, a, like a frightened turtle that would sneak its head up and then hide again. And this started happening in all of the stories that I was working on at that time. Uh, I didn't know what I was working on. I just knew they were just, they were just stories. They were just you know, independent pieces, pieces, all told by the same narrator, um, episodes in one man's life. And at the end, I wrote, finally, this boxer story, uh, which gives the title to the book, you know, The Polish Boxer. Uh, so it, 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 the, the image of a boxer is, weaves in and out of all of the stories. So it's this ghost in the book. And finally, at the end of the book, you get the story. And I published it. It was a, it was, it was a six-story collection, um, 2008 in Spanish, El Boxeador Polaco, 102 pages, a very short book. Uh, and I thought that was it. I thought, you know, that I'll move on to other voices, other stories, other books. But suddenly, uh, without any planning, without me knowing it was going to happen, one of those stories continued. So uh, Epistrophe, one of the original stories in, 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 in the volume, became a short novel published in 2010 called The Pirouette, which is a trip to, to Belgrade to look for a pianist. Uh, 2013, another one of those original stories, uh, White Smoke, continued and became a short novel called Mon Monastery, which is a trip to Israel. Uh, 2015, the next volume in the series, uh, Senor Hoffman, which is a trip to Poland, mainly, uh, to look for my grandfather's house. Uh, 2017, Morning, uh, is the fifth book, of the series and Cancion published last year in Spanish, this year in, in English is the sixth. So what happened? This small book, this very innocent 102 page book of, of 2008, the Polish boxer suddenly became something else. It became, uh, what image do we want to use? A mother book? spawning other little books. It became the center of a solar system where other books become planets that revolve around it. Uh, it's a project. It became a project of books, uh, all slim volumes, all part of, a, of, a, of, a, of something larger, something that has been writing itself without me knowing, without me planning. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know which stories are gonna continue. Characters repeat themselves. Um, stories contradict themselves. Uh, 
and and I'm still in it. I'm still working on those stories. Uh, so it's basically one big book, is it not? It's one big book that I'm working on. It's just that I've been publishing it serially uh, during during the past fourteen years, thirteen, fourteen years, and to finally get to your question about uh, uh, the Australian edition of the Polish boxer, which you read, uh, I guess 10 years ago. Uh, in translations, publishers will put several of these books together. So the edition, the English edition of the Polish boxer is two books. It contains the pirouette. Uh, the English edition of Monastery contains Senior Hoffman. The English edition of Mourning is three stories uh, because it contains two stories from uh, also from Senior Hoffman. So it, it depends the, on, on the language. Uh, the, the, the Dutch have some th done something different. The, the Germans have done something different. The Japanese uh, put three books in one. So the Japanese edition of the Polish Boxer also includes Monastery. Uh, it, this has been going on. And it's, to me, fascinating. It's fascinating because every edition of my books is absolutely original. I have to work very closely with each, each translator. I put things in, take things out, decide the order of the stories. Um, and it's fascinating. It's fascinating. But my point being the following. If it is one big book that I'm working on, or if it is a series of chapters or, 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 or episodes, and a publisher like Pushkin publishes the first one, which is what they did, and distributed it in Australia, but then stops, it's a problem. Because the stories that the Australian readers got with the Polish boxer, like you, um, then continued in my subsequent books, but the Australian readers don't know that. The US readers know it, uh, the German readers, the French readers, the, but, but in, in, in Australia, uh, the project has not continued, uh, which is a shame. Yeah, and I do strongly wish that your book would come out in, I guess, a collected edition. I think that would be amazing. You'd have a, you, you know, 800 yes. page novel. Absolutely. I think that's what should happen. It, not only in Australia, but in the UK, where Pushkin also stopped at, after the Polish boxer. UK readers have not continued. Um, there's four or five, six subsequent books that of this narrator, of this one man who, 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 who's telling these stories uh, that they have not been privy to. And, and hopefully at some point in the future, uh, both in Australia and the UK, we can do one big volume of, of, of all of these stories. Sounds amazing. I will be first in line, I think. Cancer on your new novel is an exploration of identity. It focuses on your grandfather, Eduardo, and his kidnapping in 1967 during the Civil War. And it starts with you at a writers' festival celebrating Lebanese writers, strangely in Tokyo. Do you want to tell us a bit more about the setup of the novel and a bit about the story behind the book? Right. Yeah. It's it's 
this book, well, all of my books, Ben, but this book especially is a very good example of how I write. Um, that is, uh, I write in the dark. Uh, I don't know what I'm working on as I'm working on it. I, there's no planning. There's no idea of, of where I'm headed even. Uh, so I'm very much an engineer in life, very much, too much perhaps, according to my wife and other people, because I, I tend to get too neurotic uh, and, and systematic and, and, and I plan everything out. And, um, but I am not that way when I write. When I write, especially first drafts, I don't know what's happening. And since I write short pieces, I don't know what those short pieces are a part of. Um, I'm just working on very short autonomous stories, which later reveal to me that they're a part of something larger. And this is exactly what happened with Cancion. Cancion starts with a trip to Japan, as you mentioned. You know, the first chapter is an invitation to a Lebanese writers conference, which happened. I received this invitation in 2014, I believe. Um, and I thought, at first I thought it was a joke uh, or, or a mistake, you know, I, I'm not a Lebanese writer, but they said, yes, yes, you are. You're the grandson of a Lebanese man. You are, you have the Lebanese identity in, in, in your makeup. And so I decided to go, I'll play along. I can, I can play the part if, if that, uh, allows me to go to Japan, which I'd never been to before, and I'll, I'll go. And so I went, and I came back, and I wrote this small story about a fictionalized trip to Japan, um, and I thought that was it. But something happened in Japan. Uh, right after Japan, I wrote Morning, and Morning, as you know, is the story of Salomon, the, the, the little boy Salomon, my father's older brother, or he who would have been my father's older brother, but who died when he was a kid. So it's my grandfather's firstborn. Suddenly, in mourning, after Japan, I stopped writing about one grandfather's story and started writing about the other. So my, my, my gaze, without me knowing, my gaze shifted um, to my paternal family and to their stories. 2018, I was in Guatemala uh, for the summer uh, and I accidentally pulled out of my bookcase a book my father had given me. And it was a book written by an ex-guerrilla fighter uh, my grandfather had thrown it away more than given it to me. He didn't want the book uh, because the book narrated in, in two pages in first person, my grandfather's kidnapping by one of his kidnappers. So one of his kidnappers wrote this book and told the story of his kidnapping uh, and especially the story of one of his kidnappers nicknamed Cancion, which means song in Spanish. And I grabbed a piece of paper 
and started scribbling sentences uh, by hand, which I never do. And I wrote, Le decían cancion porque había sido carnicero. They called him cancion because he used to be a butcher, which makes no sense in Spanish or in English, but which I liked. Uh, and, and I became interested in the kidnapper, much more than the kidnapping of my grandfather, uh, in, the ki in the kidnapper story. And I began writing it. Uh, and in the meantime, I wrote another piece uh, about my grandfather's house growing up in the 1970s. Uh, and all of these stories that I was working on independently, the trip to Tokyo, the kidnapper story, several pieces about growing up in a Lebanese household, suddenly, five years later, became a book. I, I, I engineered these pieces together. I think that's the right word there. Uh, because that's when the engineer does come in and places them in the proper order. Now, I'll tell you something you probably don't know about the English version of Cancion. It has an extra chapter. Uh, the chapter called Betty, which I'm sure you remember because it's, it's a very strong uh, image that I write there, uh, is not in the Spanish edition. I wrote that story after the Spanish publication of the book, but then decided to include it in the English. And that story does not exist in Spanish, only in English. So again, the English version of Cancion is different <laughs> than, than, than all the others. Well, okay. Um, I loved this book. I think it just goes to so many places. Um, I think part of the interesting part is whether your grandfather thought of himself as Lebanese or not in the book as well, which was pretty fascinating. Right. Um, but yeah, it is a fantastic, fantastic novel. But one thing I want to ask you about as well is translation, because anyone who talks to you, I'm sure, would realize that you're, you know, you speak English extremely well. And you obviously went to school in the US. Um, writing in Spanish, I guess your choice to write in Spanish in general um, and work with translators, do you find that an easy process? Is that a hard process? And, and I guess, why do you choose to write in Spanish uh, mm. as opposed to English? That's a great question. Um, the, the first answer, Ben, is that it just came out that way at the beginning. Uh, that's the, the, the most straightforward answer without trying to get too analytical or too, um, you know, uh, sappy about it. It's, it's, it's just when I was, when I started writing, I was in Guatemala, I was reading at the university and it just, I started in Spanish. Um, never thought about it, never considered writing in English, even though as I was writing in Spanish, I was thinking in English, and that's still the case. That's still the case. My, my way of writing is so strange. Uh, it's so uncommon because I am still thinking in English. I have to go translate what I want to say on DeepL uh, be, because I don't know how to say it in Spanish, and that happens every day. And slowly... I started developing my own very personal Spanish. Uh, Spanish readers who read me know this. My Spanish is not 
a, a traditional proper Spanish. It's, it's got too much English in it. My grammar, my adjective usage, my comma placement, my overuse of adverbs, which is much more accepted in English than in Spanish. Um, it just reads a little funny. It reads a little off uh, because of that, because there's so much English in it. Uh, so um, before we get to your question of translation, uh, why Spanish? Why not switch now even? Why not switch to English? And I have written in English when asked to. Uh, I've written more and more in English. Uh, I, I've, I've published a few pieces in, in the New York Review of Books that, are, that I wrote in English, a piece in The Guardian. Uh, so when asked, I will. Um, I don't know why, why, why I still write in Spanish, why I insist on Spanish. One answer is that I began in Spanish. Another answer is that my mother tongue is Spanish, but I like a third answer much more. And it's that my childhood was in Spanish. Not that my mother tongue was Spanish, but that those first 10 years, and you know this is, is important in my writing, Ben, because you've read a lot of it. My childhood is really important. I keep going back there to look for clues, to look for answers, to look for what happened. Uh, and that was all in Spanish. And that's in my psyche, in my head, in my heart, wherever you want to place it, that's all in Spanish. Uh, so if I want to go back there, I have to do it in Spanish. I don't know if that's true, but I'd like to think it is. So translation, what happens with a book of mine when Danny and Lisa are asked not to translate it into English, but to translate it back into English. Because remember, <laughs> it, was, it was in English in my head to begin with. Then it falls on the page in Spanish, but they're, they're, they're asked to do something impossible is to, is to get it back into my head. So when they give me their first draft, um, I said, no, 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 this is not, this is not what was in my head, especially with Danny because he's British and he, he uses a lot of British words that I would not use. Uh, so it's a process. Uh, after you know, four books, it's a process which we've uh, gotten used to. Uh, we've, we've tuned it, we fine tuned it. We know what to do now. I get their first drafts and I work on them uh, and then we get together. And, and, and really work at it. It's a very complicated process. And mostly what I do with their drafts is yes, get those words that I would say much more than a, a British translator would say, but much more than that, the music of it, the rhythm of the sentences. And this is something really important to me uh, is, is how they sound. Uh, uh, long sentences, short sentences, what word should this, this sentence finish on? Uh, which is really strange, you know, when, when, when translating, you're not thinking about that. But I want that word to be at the end. I want the reader to get that word last uh, for rhythm, for effect, uh, for it to be a slap or a caress or, or a lulling effect. 
that's what I work on when, when they send me their drafts. I can't do this in any other language. I can't do this when translated into German, French, Italian, Portuguese, whatever. I can only do this in English. And so I do it. I, I'm way too involved. I'm sure they would much prefer a dead writer than a so involved writer, uh, but that's what they got. That is probably the best story I've heard about translation ever. Um, it does remind <laughs> me, it reminds me a little bit of the fact that um, people like, you know, Julio Cortaza was translating people like Jorge's into different languages and things like that, which I find right. really interesting because I assume you're getting a totally different product, like from the original totally. at the end. Yes, yes, absolutely. Totally different. Yep. Fascinating. All right. Before we get to the end of this, because I've got to go to work soon, um, yep. do you want to talk just really briefly about um, some of the books, I guess, that like we were talking before, like when you decided to become a writer, some of those books that you were reading that really got you to that point where you knew you wanted to become a writer? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you know what's incredible? I'm here in Guatemala. Here's where my, my, my books are, right? Um, but I, so, so I have this huge bookshelf of books that stopped growing in 2007 because I left. So all the books that I've gotten since have traveled with me or in boxes or I've lost. I've become an e-reader. I've become a, a library reader in order not to travel with books. But these books, Ben, which are the first books I read, you know, those first 10 years are still here. And something very interesting happened. Um, when I discovered reading, I was a very specific type of reader. I was, you know, uh, I just couldn't get enough. And my, my scribblings in those books are very specific. I was looking for beauty. I was underlining uh, sentences that I liked. Uh, it was the pleasure of it, you know, the pleasure of a new drug. Uh, but then something happened when I began trying to write and I became another type of reader. Uh, and my scribblings changed. My annotations changed because I was trying to figure out how to write. So what does Hemingway do in order for this story to work? What is Kafka doing in this page? Uh, what is Carver doing? What is Bolaño doing? I was suddenly a different type of reader. And I can see that in the books. I can see that now. Um, so the first writers, the first books that, I, that, I, that really influenced me, much more than books, I can tell you writers and, and, and several of the ones I just mentioned. You know, Bolaño was instrumental because Bolaño was just becoming Bolaño when I was becoming a writer. He wasn't well known yet. And I can remember reading his stories, uh, which I'm rereading now, by the way, this week, I, I, which I tend to do, uh, reading The Savage Detectives uh, four or five times. Uh, Bolaño was, was, was instrumental, much more so than the boom. So Cortázar, Borges, uh, Rulfo, Garcia Marquez, these, are all, these were all very important writers, but, but not so much as a writer. They were very important writers for me as a reader. Um, I got to them late. I got to the Americans first, you know, so Hemingway, Carver, Cheever, the short story tradition in the US was really important as a reader and then as a writer. And I think you can sense that in, in my way of writing. They're much more present than the Latin Americans. 
until I get to Bolaño. Bolaño suddenly writes about a Latin America that I can understand, um, a much more cosmopolitan Latin American. Yeah, so it wasn't it wasn't dictators and military coups and and magical realism, and it was this Latin America that that could take place in Spain or in in the U.S. Uh, it wasn't circumscribed to a territory or a language. It was a much dirtier and grimier uh, Latin America that I loved, um, uh, and 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 the Americans, of course, but also somebody like Joyce. Uh, so the European short story writers, uh, Kafka, obviously, and and uh, and Joyce, and Maupassant, uh, and the Russians, especially Chekhov. Uh, but I can see that in my annotations, and it's incredible. I, I left behind here in Guatemala a record of my process in my books which is uh, phenomenal. I think the, with Bolaño, and as you know, now that Bolaño is an industry on his own, I think right. that a lot of South and Central American writers are immediately compared to Bolaño. And I think yeah. the, the common factor between your work and his work, I think, is that you are outwardly fo focused. I think that right. South America or Central America is not something that you write about um, in as much sense as you're writing about world literature, you're writing about uh, right. events that take place everywhere. So I think that that is probably the key thing, I think, between I think your so. work and his work, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think, I think you're, you're right. Uh, I'm, I'm compared a lot to Bolaño, and I think that comparison is correct. Um, you know, Bolaño was writing about Mexico while living in Spain. Uh, but as he writes about Mexico, he goes to Israel, and he goes, you know, to, to, to France. And, and there's this... There's this worldly quality to his Latin America that I think I also have, um, and and but but mine with a much more Jewish uh, mm. tone to it, an uh, uh, Eastern European sensibility or sense of humor, which I get from the Americans, from from Roth and from you know Saul Bellow and and, and from all the, the the American Jewish writers. But you, you know what's funny? I'm also compared a lot to Sebald. Um, mm. And the funny thing about that is that I, I finally read Sebald once I saw those comparisons. Uh, so once critics started comparing me, I had never read Sebald. Uh, <laughs> and so I went to read him to see what the fuss was about. And, and I see a little bit of that as well, but, but, but less so, less so than with Bolaño. Bolaño was, it was just, I, I was, I was at, at that moment, you know, I was, I was a, a, a young, quote unquote, young, reader writer and and very impressionable and and he was just uh the right writer at the right time i guess wow all right let's talk about some of the books you're currently reading on your holiday or some of the things you've recently enjoyed yeah so this is the third reader i've become yeah i mentioned <laughs> the first one which was the junkie reader just the, dr the drug addict with books then the second one uh the artisan. I, I like to call him the artisan reader because he wants the craft. He wants to learn the craft. But, but suddenly, Ben, <laughs> I don't know if it was uh, becoming a father or uh, just life or my age, you know, I turned 50 last year. I became a very, the cantankerous reader. I just, I have no patience anymore. Uh, I, 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 I start books and leave them unfinished. 
I'm very impatient with, with prose I don't like, uh, with, with, with the stories that aren't uh, just, just flying off the page. I'm, I have a very, uh, um, I, I demand a lot from the books I'm reading. So, so I've become a very different reader from those first two. That said, uh, I've become a rereader, much more so than I was in the past. So this year, for example, uh, I, I decided to reread all of Cormac McCarthy, um, which in, in, in my opinion is the best living American writer. Uh, I reread his, his, his uh, Border thriller trilogy. I reread uh, some of his other novels, especially and with special attention, uh, No Country for Old Men, which I, I think is, is, is fantastic. And I'm rereading now, I have it here next to me, uh, Blood Meridian, um, which, which is, is, is for some reason, uh, one of the books that, that, that moves me the most and which I come back to often. It is a book so far from my reality. You know, the, 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 the American West uh, in the 1800s could not be further away from, from where I am. And it moves me profoundly, uh, the language of it, the, the, the poetry of it. Uh, so I know Cormac McCarthy has two new books coming out next month in, in, in October. Uh, and I wanted to reread all of it. But I arrive in Guatemala and I'm, I'm rereading Bolaño. Uh, his stories, I have here The Savage Detectives again, which I, 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 I'm hesitant to begin because I know what will happen if I begin it. <laughs> I have to finish it. Uh, but Bolaño recharges me. Um, when I lose faith in, in, in writing, something that happens often, uh, he, he gives it back to me. Uh, I, I see what's possible. With it, with in, in his prose, in his in his pages, uh, so I've I've become a rereader of, of 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 all of these books that are very very special for me. Amazing. All right. Before I let you go, um, because I think I could talk to you for several more hours, um, do you want to give us maybe a top couple of books uh, that you would recommend that people should read? Well, that depends. That depends. I, 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 as you can imagine, I'm asked this question a lot uh, at, at, at events, at, at book fairs. Um, and, and I always ask back, you know, because it's very hard to recommend a book unless you know your audience. Uh, but if people want to get closer to Latin America, I think Bolaño would be a good place to start. I think, I think The Savage Detectives is, 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 a, is um, one of these... Uh, touchstone books for Latin Americans know, but as is con uh, conversation in, in the cathedral of, of Vargas Llosa, which mm -hmm. I had a hard time reading. I began that book maybe 10 times before I finally cracked it. And once I cracked it, because his, his way of writing is, is very, very peculiar in that book. Uh, it's, 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 it's an amazing read. Uh, and if they want to get closer to Guatemala, there's a, there's, a, there's a couple of writers, um, Augusto Monterroso, who I think is not so much translated into English, probably not at all. 
uh, and, and uh, uh, Rodrigo, Rere, Rodrigo Rey Rosa, who is, uh, by new directions, would be a, a, a good writer. But if my audience is American, I would go immediately to um, Corbin McCarthy, uh, who I think is, is, is uh, uh, the most important living writer in, in the US. Uh, Blood Meridian is a challenging book. It's not an easy book to read. Uh, no Country for Old Men is perhaps a little more accessible. Uh, Sutri is a little more accessible. But, but it, so again, it depends on my audience. Uh, this is a very long-winded answer uh, uh, in order to not give you an answer. <laughs> because a book really uh, depends on its reader. Uh, no, uh, I think. Like you, I cannot wait for those two new books coming out pretty soon. Uh, I can't wait. I can't wait. I, I, I'm going to wait because I don't like reading hardbacks. Mm. Uh, so I'm going to wait a bit, but, but uh, I'm, I'm very much looking. And you know, we know these are his last two books. He's yeah. 91. He's done. He's done probably. Uh, so I'm very much looking forward to him. Yeah. Absolutely. Before we wrap this up, do you want to tell us where we can get in touch with you if we can? Um, and also yeah. uh, where we can go and buy Cancion. Well, Cancion, I think, comes out September 20th, if I'm not mistaken, official pub date. Uh, and it's, it'll be available everywhere uh, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and Canada. But as you and I spoke before we began recording, it's available on ebook. Um, so if you really want to read a book now, there is really no excuse. It is available everywhere, uh, as long as you're... Uh, tolerant enough or open-minded enough to, to, to not have it in print. Uh, and hopefully it'll, it'll, it'll get to Australia and the UK in, 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 the, in the near future. But, but as of now, Cancion will only be available in print in the US and Canada. And I'm available on social media. I'm, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. Um, I, I love to interact with readers. Um, uh, so, so it, it, you know, it, it, it takes up a lot of my time, but I, I try to make an effort because it is important and I do enjoy it, um, to, you know, to connect with, with people, uh, all over the world. Yeah. Well, Ed, it has been such a pleasure speaking with you. Um, likewise, I- Ben, it's, it's, it's been great, really. <laughs> I, yeah, I really urge everyone to go out and, and read all of your books, but Cancion, uh, has been something I think I've been waiting for for quite a while and I just loved it. So congratulations. Well, I, I, I'm glad I didn't disappoint. That's, 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 that's a lot of expectation <laughs> to, to put on someone, but I'm glad I dis- didn't disappoint. You certainly didn't. Enjoy your summer in Guatemala. And um, thank you. Hope we can talk again soon. We will. We will. Thank you. And thanks again for the invitation. Thanks once again to Eduardo Helfon. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BeyondZeroPod, and you can email us at BeyondTheZeroPod at gmail.com. You can also leave us a voice message at anchor.fm forward slash beyondzero. We'll be back with the next episode next week.